Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Well, today we are going to begin the first of a four-part series on Christ in the Old Testament. Now, we are going to actually look at the prophecies of Christ. We are going to look at what the prophets actually understood in the Old Testament about the predictions they were making about Christ. And we are going to look at appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, my hope is that this series of studies helps you have a better appreciation for our Savior. In these four studies, we're going to look at the four servant songs that are recorded in the book of Isaiah. Our first stop for today is Isaiah 42, and we're going to head there in just a bit. The story is told of a pastor of a church who stood up after the hymns, and he walked over to the pulpit, and he introduced a visiting pastor, one of his closest childhood friends. He wanted to give this man a few minutes to share. And this elderly pastor, he stepped up to the pulpit and listened to the story that he told them. A father, his son, and a friend were sailing off of the Pacific coast when a fast approaching storm blocked any attempt to get back to shore. The waves were high and the father couldn't keep the boat upright. And the three were swept into the ocean as the boat capsized. Grabbing a rescue line, the father had to make the most difficult decision of his entire life. To which boy would he throw the rescue line? He only had seconds to make the decision. Because the waves were so high, he knew there was only time to save one of them. The father also knew that his own son was a redeemed believer in Jesus Christ. And he knew that his son's friend was not. And so the father... He painfully yelled out to his son that he loved him, and he threw the lifeline to his son's friend. Now, by the time the father had pulled the friend back to the capsized boat, his son had disappeared beneath the waves, and his body was never recovered. The father, he knew his son would step into eternity with Jesus Christ, and he could not bear the thought of his son's friend stepping into eternity without Jesus. He sacrificed his own son to save his son's friend. Now with that, the old man turned and sat back down in his chair as complete silence filled this room. As soon as the services were over that day, two teenagers came right up to talk with this old man. And one of the boys told him, he said, I don't think it was realistic for a father to give up his son's life with the hope that the other boy would actually become a Christian. The old man, he looked down at his worn out Bible and he told them, well, you have a point there. 
But as he looked up, a big old smile came across his face, and he looked up at the boys, and then he just told them, it sure isn't realistic, is it? But I'm standing here to tell you today that the story gives me a glimpse of what it must have been like for God to give up his only son for me. You see, I was the father, and your pastor, he was my son's friend. The servant songs of Isaiah, they have been rightly described as the loftiest peaks of messianic prophecy in the entire Old Testament. In these four poems, known as the servant songs, the Hebrew prophet reveals a clear vision of the Messiah. Isaiah introduces Yahweh's servant. He introduces God the Father sending God the Son on our behalf. It is a message of God's saving grace. These captivating sections of Scripture, they offer us hope, encouragement, and an opportunity to strengthen our faith in Christ. So as we make our way through the servant songs, we'll see that the text reveals a clear image of a person. They reveal that the sovereign creator of the universe, he sent his son. God the Father sent the servant on a mission. Now the first servant song found in Isaiah 42, it proclaims the purpose of the servant in coming to the world. He came to accomplish salvation and to establish justice and righteousness in the earth. The four servant songs are some of the most beautiful poetry in Hebrew literature. These four passages are so clearly messianic, it's difficult not to see their reference to the Lord Jesus Christ and their ultimate fulfillment in Him. Now consider to yourself for a second that the predictions of the servant were something that the prophets themselves actually longed to know more of. They wished they understood more. You see, 1 Peter chapter 1, it contains a foundational statement about our understanding of the prophets as they wrote under the direction of God. Peter tells us, starting in verse 10 of 1 Peter 1, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them, it was revealed not to themselves, but to us. Notice this. But to us, they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you. Through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. The human writer of Scripture knew what God directed them. They knew what God directed them to write, but they were looking for something. The prophets were looking for something. They were searching carefully, searching intently for the time when these prophecies would be fulfilled and for the details of these prophecies. Now the context, it dictates that Peter was not just talking about salvation when we first believed the gospel. Verse 9 in 1 Peter, it mentions the end of your faith. This is the goal of our faith, our glorification in heaven. Notice here in verse 11, it was the Spirit of Christ. It was the Holy Spirit himself. You see, Peter was testifying that the Spirit of God witnessed of the Christ even back in the Old Testament. 
The unifying theme of the Old and New Testaments, it is Christ. It is the message of redemption. Remember the words of 2 Peter 121. Prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or better carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, here's what I'm saying. The, the prophets, much of the time, they understood the message. Not always. Not always. Daniel 12 comes to mind. Sometimes they didn't get it. Sometimes they didn't understand. But often they did. Often they studied it because they wanted to know when the Christ would come. They wanted to know when the Christ would suffer. It was the timing they were seeking to know more of. And they wanted to know the details of the glories that would follow. You see, the Old Testament prophets understood the prophecies of the Spirit of God that the Messiah would, in fact, suffer. And they understood that the Messiah would come to rule and reign. But how do you reconcile these two? How do you reconcile a Messiah who will suffer and a Messiah who's going to reign as king? How do you do that? So some of the Jews, they even believed that this meant that there would be two messiahs. One who would suffer and one who would come and rule and reign. But this is something that could only be fully understood after the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus. The messiah would come twice. The messiah would come twice. First to suffer and then a second time to rule and reign. The prophets, they longed to understand these things. Christ in his own ministry actually said this. He testified the same exact thing right after he quoted from the book of Isaiah. Matthew 13, 17 records this. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Righteous men in the Old Testament, they longed to see the Christ. And Peter even tells us in verse 12 that the prophets understood that the words the Spirit of God inspired them to proclaim would be for those that came later. The prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament were written not just for Israel, primarily for them, but not just for them. They were written for you and they were written for me. And even the angels, they longed, they wanted to know, they wanted to look into these things. Peter, good old Peter. Peter was the one who didn't want to hear anything about the suffering of Christ. Do you remember? During the Lord's earthly ministry. And he's now the one in this epistle explaining the importance of both the suffering and the glorification of Christ. So before we head to Isaiah, I want you to grasp this because we're going to be building each week on this concept. I want you to understand what 1 Peter 1 is teaching us. The prophets announced that they were predicting the coming of the Messiah. They knew the Messiah would need to suffer. They knew the Messiah would achieve glory. And according to verse 11, they knew that the glories of the Christ would actually follow his suffering. And they even knew... That what they wrote would minister to people of faith beyond their own day. Now before we can rightly divide Isaiah 42, we need to cover one more matter in Luke chapter 4. And the context of Luke 4 is that Jesus was in Nazareth. He stood up to read in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Pick it up with verse 17. 
And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And notice what He did next. Then He closed the book. Then He closed the book. And he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Here's what I want you to focus on at this point. The subject matter in this text that he quoted from Isaiah 61 deals with his earthly ministry at his first advent. This passage from Isaiah prophesied the mission of the coming Messiah. The servant of the Lord would possess the Spirit. The servant of the Lord would bring good news. Jesus testified that this scripture was fulfilled right then, right there. But notice something with me in Isaiah 61. Notice carefully where Jesus left off. The last words that he read were... To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. But watch with me now in Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 that there's more to this text that Jesus did not read. So pick it up with verse 2. Watch. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He read that in Luke 4. But notice what he didn't read. And the day of vengeance of our God. He didn't read that part. He didn't say that part had been fulfilled. And the day of vengeance of our God. You see, the judgment of God will come upon this earth during the tribulation and during the second coming of Christ. Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah who could bring the kingdom of God, but his first advent was not a time of judgment. And so here's what we need to learn from this. The scriptures in the Old Testament, when predicting the Messiah, quite often they move back and forth in the text. At one moment, referring to the first advent of Christ. And then in the next, in the very next moment, they refer to his second coming. Recognize this as we make our way through the servant songs. This is often referred to as the partial fulfillment of prophecy. Hear me on this. It's not that the text is only fulfilled to some degree. It's not that. It is that part of the prophecy was fulfilled at the first advent, the first coming of Christ, and the rest awaits his second coming. You know, the illustration has often been given, and we get this living in Alaska. We understand this illustration more than most. But the illustration has often been given that it was the prophets, it was like they looked at two mountain peaks off in the distance. And these two peaks, they looked like they were close together. But what the prophet could not see was the great valley of time between them. Timing is often what the prophets wrestled with. The invasion of Normandy on D-Day in 1944 was one of the most remarkable invasions this world will ever see. It was the largest seaborne landing in history. More than 150,000 U.S. troops were committed to the initial invasion. 
That initial invasion, it included 6,900 ships, 4,100 landing craft, and almost 12,000 airplanes. Within two weeks, the British added on, they deployed an additional 314,000 men and 54,000 vehicles. And then in the United States, we put ashore more. We added another 314,000 men and another 41,000 vehicles. And tens of thousands of bombs were dropped on the German defenses. Now this, you could say safely that this was an invasion by force. This was an invasion by force. But despite the heavy bombardment by our warships, nothing stood between our troops and the German guns but the morning air. And in the first morning, in the first hours at Omaha Beach, more than 2,400 died. But what did this epic battle do? Well, it paved the way to ultimate victory over Hitler and the evils of fascism. And at one point, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, he called the operation a crusade in which we will accept nothing less than full victory. Now, it could be stated that the great invasions of history, they parallel the way in which God chose to deal with Satan's rule over this earth. You see, God invaded, but not with Massive logistical support and huge armies, but rather in a way that confounded and perplexed the wisdom of humanity. And now as we come finally to Isaiah 42, this is a part of the message that is wrapped up in the text. His mission, the first time, was to come in a quiet, gentle strength that simply invites people to trust him with their lives. But yet in the end, that gentle, quiet strength, it's stronger than any force or army the rulers of this world can put together. So let's walk quickly through Isaiah 42. Isaiah was a prophet to Judah, to the southern tribes of Benjamin and Judah, before they went into exile to Babylon. The prophet's name, Isaiah, means Yahweh is salvation. This book is just dripping with the grace of God. Isaiah began his ministry under King Uzziah, who reigned from 790 to 739 B.C. Isaiah died sometime after 681 B.C. Now, this was a tough time to actually live in Judah. The northern tribes, they didn't have much gas left in the tank. Their hearts would, were turned away from Yahweh and would eventually fall to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Now, the southern tribes, we've talked about this quite often here, that they faced the same threat from Assyria, but they withstood the attack. Why? Because at times they did turn back. At times they did return to the Lord. And it was during these dark and difficult times, a time of idolatry, a time of open disobedience to God among the Hebrew people, that Isaiah stood up to deliver this message from God. Isaiah, he called for the Hebrews to trust in Yahweh, and it cost him, it cost him dearly. Tradition teaches that Isaiah was sawn in two by King Manasseh, and that his own death is referenced in Hebrews 11.37. Now, throughout the book of Isaiah, the servant of God refers to the nation of Israel. Most of the time, that's what it refers to. So when it comes to the servant songs, which are not really songs, by the way, they are poems. When it comes to the servant songs, a common mistake is to assume that they still are referring to the nation of Israel. 
But listen, it cannot be in the opening verses of Isaiah 42. It cannot refer to Israel for two reasons. First, the wording, the text itself suggests a person and not a nation. And second, Matthew 12 quotes this text in Isaiah 42 and applies it to the person and the ministry of Jesus the Christ. In fact, the New Testament consistently applies the messianic passages to Jesus in Luke 2, Luke 4, and in Acts 8. So now, if that confuses you, that in some places in Isaiah the servant is Israel, and in other places it refers to the Messiah, let's think of it as a triangle. The base of the triangle is all the people of Israel. And the middle is the spiritual remnant, those with faith in Yahweh. And the top is the personal mediator of salvation, the Messiah, who is destined to accomplish that which Yahweh intended Israel to be. Listen. God had a reason. God had a reason for including these four servant songs in his word. You see, God wanted it on record that where the nation of Israel failed time and time again, Jesus, the servant of Yahweh, he will succeed in perfectly carrying out the will of Yahweh so that people everywhere may believe in the Holy One of Israel. Now this First servant song, it has a heavy emphasis on the relationship of the Messiah to the Gentiles. Look at the first half of verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Now there's a contrast in this text that's right before this that's remarkable. In the very last half of chapter 41, speaking of the false gods, the text states, Indeed, or some of your translations say, Behold, they are all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. Behold, God says in Isaiah 42, in contrast to those false gods, look at the servant of Israel. Now, most Jewish scholars from the past recognize that this is a reference to the Messiah. And because of this, the Palestinian Targum, which is basically just an ancient, ancient Aramaic paraphrase of the Old Testament, it even rendered this text like this. It said, Behold, the Messiah, my servant. And in chapter 41... Those of you that are familiar with Isaiah, you know that Isaiah prophesied that Cyrus would be the righteous man from the east that God would use to break the pride of Babylon and to set the captives free to return to the land of Israel. But listen, someone greater was coming. The servant was chosen and appointed by Yahweh to bring salvation to the nation of Israel and to be a light to the Gentile nations. It was predicted that Jesus... God the Son would be upheld by Yahweh. This servant is the object of his delight. Now this testifies to the eternal love here of God the Father for God the Son. And it was also predicted that Jesus would be the vessel of the power of the Spirit. Chapter 11 of Isaiah, it begins with another prophecy of the Messiah. Listen to that text. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Notice, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. You see, this prediction is that the Holy Spirit would empower the servant, the suffering Christ, and the attributes of the Spirit of God would characterize the Messiah. 
This is the same teaching of Isaiah 42. The power of the Holy Spirit would rest on him and flow through him. And we see in the New Testament the perfect fulfillment of this. Listen to Luke 3.22 at the baptism of Christ. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. But what exactly, what exactly would be the ministry of the coming servant? Look at the last part of verse 1 in Isaiah. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now, Israel had a responsibility to share the word of God with the Gentiles. But she failed. Is that fair to say? She failed. And so the Messiah, the Lord's servant, will fulfill what Israel did not do. Now let's ask the question. Did the Messiah bring forth justice to the Gentiles at his first advent? No, he did not. And so we know that this refers to his second coming, when he will establish his kingdom on the earth. Isaiah 9, 6 speaks of this. And as we look at this, I want you to pay attention and notice how it shifts back and forth between his first advent and his second coming. And you guys know this text. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see, when it refers to his government, the text is referring to his messianic kingdom. Verse 7 in that text. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even, watch, forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Just another passage quickly from Isaiah about the servant. Isaiah 11 also speaks of this starting in verse 3. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. You see, what this is telling us is that the Messiah will rule the world. He will absolutely rule the world. And he will judge by his perfect righteousness. Meaning every act he will do as king will be righteous. It will be just. And the idea of justice here refers to a verdict handed down by a judge, the righteous judge, Jesus the Christ. But Isaiah also teaches us back in chapter 42 that the Messiah would come in a manner that the world would not expect. Verses 2 and 3. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Watch, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. You see, this was a prediction that the coming servant would be gentle. He wouldn't seek to draw attention to himself any more than what was needed to accomplish his mission. Crying out in verse 2 means to cry out in distress. Same idea with crying out in the street. It pictures the Messiah not crying out in distress as the people of Israel rejected their long-awaited Messiah. Now the bruised reed, it represents the poor 
and the needy. You see, most people would walk on by and would break a weak and useless reed, but the Messiah, it says, it would, he would not be like that. Because the servant of God would come and he would be compassionate and he would be gentle with those of the world that we typically like to throw away. Instead of casting them aside, the Messiah would restore those in need. In that day, they would take a piece of cloth, put it in an animal fat or olive oil to act as a wick for the lamp. But if something is wrong, what happens? The wick kind of smokes, right? It stinks it up and smokes instead of burning brightly. The smoking flax here represents those of faith who have almost lost their faith, almost lost their hope in the Lord. When John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus to ask if he was indeed the Messiah, how did Jesus respond? He responded in Matthew eleven five like this. He said, the blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor, what? Have the gospel preached to them. You see, Jesus Christ didn't come for those who have it all put together. Jesus Christ came for those in need. Notice the text starting at the end of verse 3. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. Now, remember the teaching. Part of the teaching is the first advent of Christ, the ministry of Christ in weakness. Part of this is the ministry of Christ in power at the second coming, the despised and rejected Christ, and the conquering and judging Christ. And so what we have at work in this text is that when Christ returns, he's going to mediate or inaugurate the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, I could go on all day about that text. It's one of the most foundational verses and texts on this. But let me just read portions of it quickly, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Skip down to verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of who? The church? No. With the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And notice, notice. What it will be like at this time. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. You see, the new covenant is specifically with the nation of Israel. But notice back in our text in Isaiah 42 how this is going to benefit the Gentiles. The work of Christ, it's not done. He will not fail, Isaiah promises. He will not be discouraged. He will not quit. His enemies have no power over him. The task is not too difficult. The Messiah will establish his truth, his justice throughout this whole planet, the whole earth. And even, Isaiah says, the coastland shall wait for his law. Coastlands, islands, the remote parts of the earth. You see, God the Son will absolutely complete the work that he was sent to do. And the thought behind this text is that in the hearts of men, there is an unconscious longing for the manifestation of God's eternal law. Longing for his truth, longing for his justice, which the Messiah will reveal to the Gentile nations. So starting in verse 5, 
the text actually shifts from Yahweh talking about his servant to talking to him. In other words, let me put it in Mark speak. We are now listening in to a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. How beautiful is that? And the focus here is still on the work of the servant. And the underlying theme is that the Gentiles do not know the one true God because of their idolatry. But there is hope. That's good news for us. There's hope for the Gentiles and the Messiah of Israel. Here we have the promise of God recorded 2,700 years ago that the salvation of the Messiah will extend to the Gentiles. And in verse 5, God introduces himself as the source of all physical and all spiritual life. He created the heavens and the earth. He gives the breath of life to those who walk on it. He is the sustainer of the universe. And he alone is the author of life. This same creator, he will free people from the death and spiritual darkness. And the ministry of the servant will fulfill God's ultimate and final plan for the earth. Notice again verses 6 and 7. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. See, the Lord was promising to uphold his servant. The servant is coming back to deliver the nation of Israel from sin. The new covenant, it will bind the nation of Israel to the Lord. The prophets... They referred, they referred to the new covenant as a covenant of peace, as an everlasting covenant. See the emphasis here on the Gentiles. Christ is the true light of the world. And with verse 7, the wording is rich with metaphors. The servant would give spiritual sight and salvation from the bondage of sin. In the Gospels, we witness that Jesus gave sight to the blind. Why? In order to show them something, that he had the power to give men spiritual sight. In Isaiah 61, you see this, verse 1, the servant testifies, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. You see, the unredeemed are the blind, and they are held captive to their sin. But the salvation offered by the servant for both Jews and Gentiles, it will lead to life, not just, not just in some generic heaven, but in the messianic kingdom of God. Now God throws the gauntlet down. Take a look at our last two verses. I am the Lord. That is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth. I will tell you of them. I am the Lord. Literally, I am Yahweh. This is his covenant name. You see, God is going to see to it that the idols of this world do not get the glory that belongs to him and to him alone. And just as the former prophecies of God have come true, God is making a formal declaration here that his prophecies of the servant will come true. And hear me, accepting this truth, it's the basis for understanding all the prophecies of God. The place was 
Mobile, Alabama, and the date was September the 22nd, back in 1993. It doesn't seem so long ago, Grayson, does it? Nearby was a railroad bridge that spanned a large bayou. It was a foggy morning just before daybreak when a tugboat accidentally pushed a barge into the bayou. Now the drifting barge slammed into the bridge and in the darkness no one could see the extent of the damage of this bridge. And moments later an Amtrak train, the Sunset Limited, reached the bridge as it was traveling from Los Angeles to Miami. Completely unaware of the danger traveling through the fog, the train crossed the bridge at 70 miles an hour. There were 210 passengers on board. And as the weight of the train crossed the damage support, the bridge gave way. And three locomotives and the first four of the train's eight passenger cars, they plunged right into this alligator-infested bayou. And the darkness and the fog was thickened by fire and smoke. And the wreck, it took place six miles from land. And the victims were just completely helpless before the alligators. And helicopters were actually called in to help rescue the victims. They were able to save 163 people, but one rescue stands out. Gary and Mary Chancy were waiting in the rail car with their 11-year-old daughter, When the train car shifted and began to fill quickly with water, there was only one thing that they could do. They pushed their young daughter through the window into the hands of a rescuer, and then they just slid down into the watery grave. But what makes this story even so more remarkable, what makes it so even more beautiful, is that when you understand that according to the standards of the world, their daughter was imperfect. She was born with cerebral palsy. And she needed help with even the most routine things. But it didn't matter because she was precious to her parents. And so at the last minute, they willingly faced their own death to offer her a chance at life. This is a part of the beautiful picture that is painted in Isaiah 42 of our Savior's love for us. Verse 3 teaches... A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. Around the edges of the Jordan River, around the Sea of Galilee, there's plenty of these reeds. And reeds have hollow stems. They're actually very quite fragile. And when you see them by the water, many of them are knocked over from wind or from animals coming to get a drink. And once a reed is broken, it cannot be fixed. But Isaiah's not talking about reeds, is he? You see, Isaiah is talking about people. He's telling us that people can absolutely become bruised. They can become hurt. They can become knocked over. And the message of Isaiah 42 is that Jesus came to have an impact on people. He did not come to break a person who was hurting. Jesus did not come to knock down a person who was already bent low with the difficulties of life. And even though a reed cannot be fixed, the Lord is able to bind up our broken lives to give us new strength and to heal our damaged lives by simple faith in Him. We also read in this text that a smoking flax He will not quench, or a dimly burning wick, some translations say, He will not extinguish. 
These are believers who at one time, they burned so brightly for the Lord. But over the course of time, the lights, the lights began to flicker. Their relationship with the Lord at one time had been so good, but now is faint. Now is flickering. Isaiah teaches us that Jesus, he's not in the business of destroying what little faith is left in us. That's not why he came. His desire is to trim the wick, to add oil to the lamp, fan the flame, and to bring it back to greater strength than ever before. You know, we're really imperfect people living imperfect lives. To the world, we're nobody. We're nobody. But we are precious to Jesus. So precious. He sacrificed his life to save us. And so my challenge to you this morning is this. Allow him to restore you. Allow him to rekindle your flame and your faith in him. The rapture, Israel, the tribulation, the kingdom of God, the millennium, the judgment seat of Christ, the battle of Armageddon. These are just some of the topics that we cover in our book, What Lies Ahead. We wanted to write a book that was easy to understand, that would give a good, solid overview of the end times. You can find it on our website, returntotheword.com. That book, again, is What Lies Ahead. And if you've read it, leave us a review on Amazon. It helps us. It helps us to tell others about this study of God's plan for the end times. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Return to the Word. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening. And we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.